We begin the year with the proceedings of the 48th Respiratory Care Journal Conference Pulmonary Function Testing. We are indebted to conference co-chairs Greg Ripple and Paul Enright and to each of the faculty for the success of this conference. These papers should be of interest not only to those who regularly perform and interpret PFTs, but also those who are involved in pulmonary function testing on a more occasional basis. Our first paper is by McCormick and addresses the variability in DLCO testing. Single breath DLCO is a common pulmonary function test that measures the ability of the lungs to exchange gas across the alveolar capillary interface. DLCO testing is used to narrow the differential diagnosis of obstructive and restrictive lung disease, to aid in disability and transplant assessment, and to monitor medication toxicity. The variability in measurement limits the utility of the test. Variability is attributable to differences in equipment, testing conditions, patient factors, and reference equations. Laboratories can minimize variability by ensuring that equipment meets recommended standards, implementing effective quality control programs, standardizing testing conditions and testing procedures, and accounting for pertinent patient characteristics. As discussed by McCormick, the variability in DLCO testing affects the utility of the test. Variability is attributable to the equipment, the testing conditions, the patients, and the reference equations that are used. As she nicely addresses in her paper, variability can be minimized in a number of ways, such as ensuring that equipment meets recommended standards, implementing effective quality control programs, standardizing testing conditions and testing procedures, and accounting for pertinent patient characteristics. Ruppel next addresses the clinical value of measuring lung volumes. Lung volumes are considered part of a complete pulmonary function test, but their value for enhancing clinical decision-making is unknown. Unlike spirometry and DLCO, which contribute to confirming or excluding a diagnosis, there are few clear indications of when lung volumes are discriminatory. Confirming restriction when vital capacity or forced vital capacity is reduced is perhaps the most important. A restrictive pattern can have many etiologies, and clinicians often use VC or FVC as a primary index of lung volume. This makes physiologic sense because, in healthy subjects and in patients with true restriction, VC comprises most of the total lung capacity. Mixed obstruction restriction and the nonspecific pattern require measuring TLC to confirm the underlying physiology. In obesity, VC and TLC may remain within normal limits, but functional residual capacity can exponentially decrease. Increased lung volumes, particularly RV, are commonly observed in airway obstruction. TLC may be normal, but is frequently increased in the late stages of COPD. Hyperinflation and air trapping are terms commonly used to reflect these changes, but are not well standardized. The variability of lung volumes related to degree of obstruction suggests that measuring gas trapping may be needed to monitor therapy. Changes in inspiratory capacity, RV or FRC, may be important gauges of response to bronchodilators or other hyperinflation-reducing therapies. 
how lung volumes are measured may be important, especially in patients who have moderate or severe airway obstruction. Body plethysmography is often considered more accurate than gas dilution methods in the presence of obstruction. However, the differences between techniques are not completely understood. Newer approaches such as computed tomography, although not suitable for routine testing, may help to delineate the true underlying physiology. Lung volumes are considered part of a complete PFT, but as pointed out by Ruppel, there are a few clear cases where lung volumes are discriminatory. Confirming a restrictive pattern when vital capacity is reduced is perhaps the most important indication. Although body plethysmography is often considered more accurate than gas dilution methods in the presence of obstruction, this has recently been challenged. Computed tomography may help to delineate the true underlying physiology. The best pulmonary diagnostic approach for wheezing patients with normal spirometry is discussed by Busi. Asthma is characterized by airway inflammation, airway hyperresponsiveness, and variable airflow obstruction. The diagnosis of asthma, however, is often based upon nonspecific clinical symptoms of cough, wheeze, and shortness of breath. Furthermore, the physical examination and measurements of pulmonary function are often unremarkable in patients with asthma, thereby complicating the diagnosis of the disease. This paper reviews approaches to the diagnosis of asthma when lung functions are normal and will largely focus on the use of bronchial provocation tests to detect underlying airway hyperresponsiveness. The diagnosis of asthma is often based on nonspecific clinical symptoms such as cough, wheeze, and shortness of breath. The physical examination and PFT results are often unremarkable in patients with asthma, thereby confounding the diagnosis of the disease. Busi nicely reviews approaches to the diagnosis of asthma when PFTs are normal and focuses on the use of various bronchial provocation tests to detect underlying airway hyperresponsiveness. Saltzman next describes how pulmonary function tests can differentiate between COPD phenotypes. We are still at the early phase of finding useful phenotypes in COPD that can guide therapy. However, in a simple sense, sick patients die. Many phenotypic measurements of severity correlate with mortality in COPD. FEV1, the ratio of inspiratory capacity to total lung capacity, DLCO, 6-minute walk distance, and maximum oxygen consumption or maximum watts on exercise testing. However, composite parameters such as the Bode index perform better, likely because they capture different aspects of severity that affect functional impairment and risk of death. Bronchodilator responsiveness is just a relative feature that aids in distinction of asthma and COPD, but it is not diagnostic in this use. A normal DLCO helps to rule out exercise-induced oxygen desaturation, but those with a low DLCO and COPD need exercise measurements to confirm desaturation. Currently, PFTs alone do not define subsets who respond to particular therapies. The presence of airflow obstruction and its severity increase the risk of lung cancer in COPD patients. 
inflammatory biomarkers, exhaled nitric oxide, sputum, and bronchoalveolar lavage eosinophilia, help distinguish asthma from COPD. Genetics is a promising area to elucidate pathophysiology and treatment for asthma and COPD, but currently alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency is the only genetically determined phenotype that has relevance for COPD management. The best promise for the future seems to be in composite phenotypes or scores, both for distinguishing asthma from COPD and for guiding therapeutic options. It may be better to throw out the old limiting diagnostic concepts. If instead we start from outcomes of interest, perhaps we can work back to predictors of these outcomes and organize new diagnostic entities that have predictive relevance for treatment choices, functional outcomes, and mortality. Many phenotypic measurements of severity from PFTs correlate with mortality in COPD. The Bode Index, however, performs better. The presence of airflow obstruction increases the risk of lung cancer in COPD patients. Bronchodilator responsiveness aids in distinguishing asthma from COPD, as do inflammatory biomarkers. Alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency is the only genetically determined phenotype that currently has relevance. Over the years, a great deal of effort has been made to standardize all pulmonary function tests on adults. This is discussed in the paper by Seed and colleagues. Many of the rules concerning the interpretation of the spirogram have been based entirely on adult observations. In the age of increasing conformity and attempts to relate adult literature to the pediatric population, the latter was given much less emphasis than the former. This review will attempt to show what areas in PFTs are similar in adults and children's, but more specifically will show the areas that are different. The latest standards published by the ATS-ERS in 2005 have attempted to incorporate some differences for the pediatric population for spirometry, but more work needs to be done in this area. While it is recognized that spirometry is the primary pulmonary function test for children, there are a number of circumstances where the addition of plethysmography and lung diffusion measurements are necessary. The review will state some of the limitations of these tests when performed by children. Lung function testing, particularly spirometry, has much to offer in the diagnosis of lung disease in children and the monitoring of response to therapy. With better standardization of pulmonary function testing in children and more trained technologists, the age limits for testing can be extended to below six years of age and sometimes below five. Also, with better standardization, the results obtained are meaningful and when interpreted in context of age, offer excellent diagnostic information to better treat the child with lung disease. We have been taught that children are not little adults. The latest standards published by the ATS and ERS have attempted to incorporate some differences for the pediatric population for spirometry, but more work needs to be done. While it is recognized that spirometry is the primary PFT for children, Seed and colleagues point out that there are a number of circumstances where the addition of plethysmography and DLCO are necessary. With better standardization of pulmonary function testing in children, the age limits for testing can be extended to below six years of age. 
measurement of various aspects of pulmonary function is a relatively easy, non-invasive, and inexpensive way to gauge the status of the respiratory system. Interest in using these tests to determine risk from medical and surgical intervention stems from their presumed ability to be more sensitive in detecting underlying lung disease than history or physical examination. This is covered in the paper by Nyatik. When coupled with the assumption that early detection of pulmonary abnormalities will lead to alterations in patient management, the ultimate goal of improved patient outcomes becomes very attractive. However, despite advances in technology, achievement of this goal has proved to be more challenging than expected in many areas. This article attempts to review the literature addressing several of the more difficult of these areas. It is clear that more research involving more rigorously designed studies will be necessary before definitive answers are available. There is much clinical interest in using pulmonary function tests to determine risk from medical and surgical interventions. The ultimate goal is early detection of pulmonary abnormalities to improve patient outcomes. However, achievement of this goal has proved to be challenging. More research involving more rigorously designed studies is needed. Spirometry is considered the primary method to detect the airflow limitation associated with obstructive lung disease. However, airflow limitation is the end result of many factors that contribute to obstructive lung disease. One of these factors is increased airway resistance, as described in the paper by Kaminsky. Airway resistance is traditionally measured by relating airflow and driving pressure using body plethysmography thus deriving airway resistance, specific airway resistance, and specific airway conductance. Other methods to measure airway resistance include the forced oscillation technique, which allows calculation of respiratory system resistance and reactance, and the interrupter technique, which allows calculation of interrupter resistance. An advantage of these other methods is that they may be easier to perform than spirometry making them particularly suited to patients who cannot perform spirometry, such as young children, patients with neuromuscular disorders, or patients on mechanical ventilation. Since spirometry also requires a deep inhalation, which can alter airway resistance, these alternative methods may provide more sensitive measures of airway resistance. Furthermore, the FOT provides unique information about lung mechanics that is not available from analysis using spirometry, body plethysmography, or the interrupter technique. However, it is unclear whether any of these measures of airway resistance contribute clinically important information to the traditional measures derived from spirometry. The purpose of this paper is to review the physiology and methodology of these measures of airway resistance and then focus on their clinical utility in relation to each other and to spirometry. Airway resistance is traditionally measured by relating airflow and driving pressure using body plethysmography. As Kaminsky describes in his paper, other methods to measure airway resistance include the forced oscillation technique and the interrupter technique. These methods may be easier to perform than spirometry. Alternative methods may provide more sensitive measures of airway resistance, but the clinical importance of any of the measures of airway resistance over traditional spirometry is unclear.
with the introduction of the stair climb test of surgical patients in the 1950s, the role of exercise-based testing as a useful diagnostic tool and an adjunct to conventional cardiopulmonary testing was established. Since then, as described in the paper by Pachurko, we have witnessed a rapid development of numerous tests, varying in their protocols and clinical applications. The relatively simple field tests shuttle walks, stair climbs, six-minute walk tests, require minimal equipment and technical support, and so are generally available to physicians and patients. At the other end of the spectrum is the cardiopulmonary exercise test, more complex in its equipment requirements, technical support, and with an often complex interpretive strategy. The six-minute walk test in particular has evolved into a versatile study with diagnostic utility in many disorders, including COPD, pulmonary hypertension, interstitial lung disease, congestive heart failure, and in the pre-surgical evaluation of patients, among others. With the added dimensions of optional oxygen saturation monitoring and calculated post-exercise heart rate recovery, the six-minute walk test is providing important clinical information well beyond the measure of distance walked. Is it sufficiently robust and informative to replace the more demanding and less available cardiopulmonary exercise testing? In many instances, the clinical applications are overlapping, with the six-minute walk test functioning as an adequate surrogate. However, in the initial evaluation of unexplained dyspnea, informal evaluation of impairment and disability, in detailed evaluation of congestive heart failure, and in the selected lung cancer patient prior to resection, cardiopulmonary exercise testing remains superior. Investigations of portable metabolic and cardiovascular monitoring devices aiming to enhance the diagnostic capabilities of six-minute walk test may further narrow or close the remaining gap between these two exercise studies. The shuttle walk, stair climb, and six-minute walk test require minimal equipment and technical support. At the other end of the spectrum, the cardiopulmonary exercise test is more complex. The six-minute walk test has diagnostic utility in many cardiopulmonary disorders. However, as pointed out by Pachurko, the cardiopulmonary exercise test remains superior for the evaluation of unexplained dyspnea, formal evaluation of impairment and disability, detailed evaluation of congestive heart failure, and in selected patients prior to lung resection surgery. As Haynes describes in his paper, the skill and work habits of the pulmonary function technologist are central to the quality of patient testing. Pulmonary function technologists should be chosen carefully. The pulmonary function technologists must be intelligent, conscientious, and possess critical thinking skills. Studies are needed to better identify which kinds of personality traits correlate with superior job performance and whether or not such traits can be reliably identified by standardized testing. Monitoring of technologist performance and technologist feedback improves the quality of testing, but is only utilized by a minority of clinical laboratories. Pulmonary function laboratory accreditation is urgently needed to protect the public from potential misdiagnosis and inappropriate treatment due to spurious data.
There should be no debate that the pulmonary function technologist must be intelligent, conscientious, and possess critical thinking skills. Monitoring of technologist performance and technologist feedback improves the quality of testing, but this is utilized by a minority of clinical laboratories. Pulmonary function laboratory accreditation is urgently needed to protect the public from potential misdiagnosis and inappropriate treatment due to spurious data. Miller and Enright discuss PFT interpretive strategies, in particular ATS-ERS 2005 guideline GAPS. All pulmonologists, including those recently completing training, should be competent in critically evaluating and interpreting PFTs. In addition, some authorities recommend that respiratory therapists learn to provide preliminary PFT interpretations for the medical directors of PFT labs. The 2005 ATS-ERS guidelines for interpreting PFTs lack recommendations for the best reference equations for lung volumes and DLCO. The pretest probability of lung disease should be determined using a short questionnaire. The nonspecific pattern occurs in about 15% of patients referred to a PFT lab, but it has many clinical correlates and the course it is usually benign. Less common PFT patterns and those resulting from comorbid conditions such as obesity, respiratory muscle weakness, or heart failure are not discussed by the guidelines. More than half of patients with interstitial lung disease have a normal ratio of DLCO to our VLR volume and may have a normal total lung capacity. The 2005 ATS and ERS guidelines for interpreting PFTs lack recommendations for the best reference equations for lung volumes and DLCO and for non-whites. The pretest probability of lung disease should be determined using a short questionnaire. Unfortunately, less common PFT patterns and those resulting from comorbid conditions are not discussed by the guidelines. How the lower limit of the normal range is defined is discussed in the paper by Culver. Lung function parameters vary considerably with age and body size so that, unlike many laboratory tests, the normal range of expected values must be individualized. For spirometry, only low values are considered to be abnormal, so the lower limit of normal is taken to be equal to the fifth percentile of a healthy non-smoking population. Simple and commonly used rules of thumb, such as FEV1 to FVC ratio less than 0.7 to indicate airflow obstruction, or assuming values less than 80% of predicted to be abnormal are inaccurate and will cause misclassification, specifically underdiagnosis of abnormalities in younger, taller individuals and overdiagnosis in those older or shorter. A much more accurate lower limit of normal for the FEV1 to FVC ratio, which recognizes the change with age of this measurement, can be easily determined by subtracting 10 from the age-specific FEV1 to FVC ratio predicted for any individual. The analysis and mathematical descriptions of reference data have become increasingly sophisticated in recent years but the interpretation of values near the lower limit of normal continues to carry uncertainty due to an overlap in values between low normal values and those reflecting early disease.
Among patients referred to a pulmonary function laboratory, the pretest probability of disease may be relatively high, so that even individuals with values above the lower limit of normal may be more likely than not to have respiratory disease. A future goal for the pulmonary community would be the development of risk-stratified outcome data that would allow an estimation of the probability of disease with progressive decrements in lung function. While interpreting spirometry results near the lower limit of normal will continue to be problematic, a more important task for the pulmonary community is to focus on finding the pool of individuals with clear-cut but undiagnosed COPD. And for this, good quality spirometry remains the best tool and must be widely available. How the lower limit of normal should be defined is a complex topic. For spirometry, only low values are considered to be abnormal, so the lower limit of normal is taken to be equal to the fifth percentile of a healthy, non-smoking population. Simple and commonly used rules of thumb are inaccurate and will cause misclassification. The analysis and mathematical descriptions of reference data have become increasingly sophisticated in recent years, but the interpretation of values near the lower limit of normal continues to carry on certainty. A future goal for the pulmonary community would be the development of risk-stratified outcome data that would allow an estimation of the probability of disease with progressive decrements in lung function. Should we keep pushing for a spirometer in every doctor's office? This question is addressed by Enright. Professional societies have encouraged primary care providers to conduct spirometry testing for the detection of COPD. In spite of this effort, the success rate is unacceptably low. Simple flow-sensing spirometers have technical flaws that can cause misreadings, and they are rarely checked for accuracy. When spirometry is performed by an experienced technologist, and when payment is made on the criterion of quality, the success rate for adults and school-aged children can be as high as 90%, but testing remains a challenge for younger children and the elderly. Regular feedback for the technologist about their results of testing is essential. Even with an accurate spirometer, an able patient, and a skilled technologist, the ordering physician may wrongly interpret the data. Use of spirometry in primary care will continue to be problematic unless high-quality testing is tied to reimbursement. Using FEV1 or peak flows measurements to rule out airway abnormality in the majority of patients, followed by referral for more sophisticated studies in those remaining, may be the best approach. Respiratory therapists should engage in this effort. Enright points out that quality PFTs are difficult to obtain in the offices of primary care providers. He suggests a two-stage program. In patients who are smokers, COPD is ruled out by measuring FEV1 or peak flow. Those with abnormal values should be referred for good quality spirometry. Enright identifies respiratory therapists as valuable participants in this program. A look at the future of pulmonary function testing is covered by McIntyre. 
The pulmonary function lab of today is heavily focused on describing pathophysiology and quantifying the extent of disease. As we move forward, it is important that the results of pulmonary function tests go beyond this and be linked to important outcomes that truly affect clinical decision making. To get there, improvements in device performance are required. High-quality technicians are critical, and properly trained interpreting clinicians with good reference standards are mandatory. Moreover, as accessibility to these tests is increased, it is important that quality metrics remain intact. There is a wide array of novel tests that might be performed by pulmonary function labs in the future. These range from modification of current technologies to brand new technologies that are still in early development. Examples include exhaled breath analysis, sophisticated analyses of lung mechanics and gas exchange, cardiac and tissue oxygenation assessments, and imaging technologies. Adoption of any new technology will require, even more than today, clear evidence that the new technology is a real adjunct to clinical decision making. PFTs of the future might include exhaled breath analysis, sophisticated analyses of lung mechanics and gas exchange, cardiac and tissue oxygenation assessments, and imaging technologies. Adoption of any new technology will require clear evidence that the new technology is a real adjunct to clinical decision making. These tests will require improvements in device performance, high quality technologists, properly trained interpreting clinicians, and good reference standards. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www. .rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.